If you want to be tracking down a, um, a red Bible nearby, this morning we're finding our way back into the book of Romans, uh, Paul's letter in the New Testament. Uh, been a while since we've been there, um, so thought it makes sense just for a moment or two before uh, Katie comes to read chapter 4, um, just to, to reorientate us um, a little bit uh, to, to this letter. Um, so Paul's letter to the Christians uh, in Rome, uh, somewhere around 58 AD. Uh, some of those believers in Rome uh, were of a Jewish background, um, but probably the majority weren't, uh, Gentiles, not Jews. Um, Paul had never been to Rome. So this letter uh, serves as something of an introduction to himself and an introduction to the gospel. Uh, that he preaches. Uh, it looks as if Paul is planning to, to visit Rome uh, on his way through to Spain. Um, and so he, he sends this letter um, in advance of that. And so far, uh, the bit we've, we've looked at before Christmas, chapters 1, 2, 3, um, so far it's been largely bad news. Uh, for, for three chapters, Paul has set out the case against mankind. Uh, showing how every single one of us um, is guilty of rebellion against God and every single one of us, uh, therefore, uh, stands under the judgment of God. Now, of course, Paul doesn't by that mean that we are all morally identical. Um, he recognizes that there are some, there are some good people and, and some bad people. Um, there's, there's some sort of a scale um, but his point is that, that no one, even the best of us, as it were, uh, reaches the standards of God. Um, think of it a little bit like this. Um, you might say that uh, some people live down in valleys and other people live on mountaintops. There is a difference in terms of the altitude at which they live, but none of them can touch the stars. Um, so it is with us. Um, yes, we may vary, you might find some people are, are relatively better and relatively worse. But um, in Paul's language, verse 23 of chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's the bad news. The, the, the great message of Romans, though, isn't bad news. It's good news. The good news that a righteousness has been made known that God has revealed a way in which he is able to, to both deal with sin, condemn sin, and yet simultaneously forgive the sinner. Uh, and this is the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Uh, he's achieved this, how? Verse 25, um, by presenting Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Sin gets condemned in Jesus, but justification, a, a right status, also gets granted through Jesus. Now, the way it works is that Jesus gets the punishment that belongs to me, and I get the righteousness that belongs to Jesus. Now, if you've been around at Christ Church for a while, uh, then this the essence of this gospel won't be news to you. Um, but it is radical. 
It's extraordinary that God should act in this way. Um, And we can become familiar with it and somehow sort of overlook just how extraordinary it is that God should absorb the very punishment for sin in himself and grant to us a status of righteousness equivalent uh, to that that Jesus Christ himself has. And it is so radical, so extraordinary, that it raises all sorts of questions. Um, And the the next few chapters um, of this letter deals with some of the questions that this um, extraordinary gospel uh, begins to raise. And and the first, in chapter 4, is all about how does this new thing, the gospel, relate to the Old Testament and the Old Testament people of God? How does this fit together? Because God had a chosen people, didn't he? For centuries he had a chosen people. Um, So now that he's initiating something new, what does that mean for all that went before? Uh, And those are the questions that need to be in our minds as um, we listen uh, to chapter 4. Let me um, pray for us. Actually, I barely need to pray after Katie's most excellent um, prayer, but I'll, I'll do so briefly. Uh, Father God, we echo the things that um, we just prayed about a moment ago, uh, that your word would indeed uh, be light and life to us as we hear it and think about it together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're reading the whole of chapter 4 in Romans, which is on 1131, if you've not found it already. So, starting at verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin, the Lord, will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstance was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe 
but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, The promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who was raised, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Thank you very much for, for reading for us. Now, do, do you see what's, um, what's being done here? You see how Paul is going about this? In, in, a, in raising and tackling the question of where the Old Testament people of God stand, he goes right to the top. He goes straight to Abraham. Abraham, the, the, the forefather of the Jewish nation, the one from whom every Jew uh, traces their descent. So he goes straight to Abraham. Uh, what did Abraham make of all of this? How, how did he fit in to this system? Uh, look what he says in verses 1 to 3. What then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? What did he discover in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, we discover, uh, gained this righteous standing before God simply by believing, not by what he had done. 
Now, that immediately raises another question, which is, well, okay, maybe then this justification by faith, this righteousness that you get just by believing, maybe it's only for Jews. Maybe you can only have it if you're a Jew and you've been circumcised and all of that. Um, So we've got three headings that we're going to work at um, today. Thinking about this justification by faith. Who's it for? How does it work? Where does it lead? Okay, and we're already into the first of those questions. Who's it for? Is it just for Jews then? Verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. Paul's saying the sequence is all important. The order of events. Circumcision was was the big sign uh, of being... Um, a Jewish person uh, as the sign given to the Jewish people. Um, now, that made it easy to imagine that your privileged status as a Jew was somehow derived from circumcision. Uh, as if that was all that mattered. Provided you'd been circumcised, then everything was well. And we don't do it quite so much now, but you can catch some of it, can't you, in, in the way in which people end up thinking a similar thing about baptism. You know, as long as you've been baptized, then you're in. That's, that's you sorted. But, of course, that's to muddle the sign with the thing that the sign signifies. The timing is all important. In Genesis chapter 15... God calls Abraham out to gaze at the night sky. Beautiful, clear night sky, long way from any city, uh, easy to see the stars. And God says to Abraham, look up, count the stars if you can. The myriad stars, countless in number, millions of them. And God says, Abraham, that's how many offspring you're going to have. That's how many descendants are going to come from you which was a little tricky to believe, given that Abraham didn't even have one at that point. But Abraham believed God. And that belief was credited to him as righteousness. But it took another 14 years, on to chapter 17, before God then gave the sign of circumcision. See, so at the point that Abraham gets credited with righteousness, he's not circumcised. The circumcision comes just as a sign of the righteousness that he already had. It's a similar sort of idea. Baptism comes as a sign of the righteousness that a person has by faith in Jesus Christ. The sequence all important. we need to distinguish between the sign and the thing that's signified. And that's just obviously important. As it happens, um, over the next couple of days, you're very kindly allowing all of us on the staff team to go off on a retreat. Um, We're going to spend a couple of days in Suffolk. Now, 
the, the senior staff, four of us are, are heading off tonight, and everyone else is following on tomorrow. Now, imagine tomorrow that the ministry trainees are, are chucking along in, in a car, um, and somewhere on the A14, they find uh, John and Rachel and Richard and I in our sleeping bags um, in a lay-by on the A14. And they think something has gone terribly wrong, and so they pull in to find out what the matter is. And we say, no, everything's fine. And we show them the road sign in the lay-by, which has a big Suffolk sign on it. Now, they would conclude what they have already concluded pretty much along the way, that the senior staff you know, really are just a little bit quirky, because we would have confused the sign with the thing that the sign signifies. You're trying to get to Suffolk. You're not trying to get to the sign. Yeah, what matters is the place. What matters is the thing. Circumcision is a sign of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. Baptism, a sign of the righteousness that you have by believing in Jesus. You've got to be clear uh, of the sign and the thing signified. It's a good sign, but only a sign. Look at verse 11. He, Abraham, received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he's the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the uncircumcised, who not only, sorry, the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised but also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. See what he's saying? There is only one way to be saved. And it's by believing and receiving justification. And it has always been this way. There's an essential unity to the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the way God has always done it. It is the way of faith. True for Abraham, true for us. And if we believe as Abraham believed, then he's our father in the faith, whether we're Jewish or not. Okay, so first, who's it for? It's for everyone. Second question, what about the place of the law? How does the law work and how does salvation work? Because surely the law is the big thing in the Old Testament, isn't it? You can't read the Old Testament without noticing that the law is critical element of what's going on there. So how does that fit in this new uh, gospel that we're hearing about? Paul's answer to that question comes in verses 13 through to 16, where he tells us that righteousness comes not through the law, but through grace. Uh, Perhaps a little visual uh, we'll try and help before we read the, the verses there because it's a tight sort of argument. And it, it is as if Paul is saying, look, there are two paths, really. Uh, the first path is, is the law path. Um, it's a path that, that sets demands or expectations. That's what a law does. Uh, a law presents you with things that you must do. And your response to the law are, it works, you try to do what's expected of you. Okay, so that's path one, the law which makes demands and to which we respond by trying to keep the demands. But, but then there's a second path, which is the path of grace. 
And what grace does is present a promise. And the response to the promise is faith. God says he will do something. And we respond by believing that what he says is true. So how does it work? Is the Old Testament all about law and the New Testament all about grace? Is, is that the way it was? God did it one way initially and now he's changed and done it a different way. No, no, no. It's the same way throughout. There's never been a salvation through law. Uh, look what he says in verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend upon the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath, and where there's no law, there's no transgression. Paul's saying you can't have two paths here because they are utterly contrary to one another. They couldn't be more different. Faith hears a promise and believes. But law produces a demand which we then try and work to fulfill. And and if that law-keeping stuff could do the business if that could could get you righteous with God, then there would be no need for a promise. There'd be no need for grace. But the fact is that the law never produced righteousness. No, the law ever only produced wrath. The law set demands that we were unable to keep and just revealed our need for a righteousness that came from somewhere else. The only path that is open to you and I is the path of faith. See, law just leads to wrath. If we try to do works, it will always end in wrath because we can't fulfill the law. Now, only the way of grace works. Only the way of the promise. That's the point of verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. The only way that salvation can be guaranteed to you and I, the only way we can be sure of it, is if it is a gift that comes to us by promise. Think of it like this. Suppose you and I um, arrange to meet here tomorrow, this time tomorrow. Um, We fix a deal that we're going to meet here. But then you say to me, actually, our arrangement to meet here is dependent upon you fulfilling the required level of goodness over the next 24 hours. And if you are not good enough for the next 24 hours, I won't be here to meet you. Now, did you see that I have no confidence, no certainty that when I pitch up here tomorrow, you'll be here. 
because it depends upon me reaching the required standard. And I won't know if I have. I have no confidence, no assurance, no certainty of our meeting because I just don't know whether I've done well enough to meet with you. But if you say, we'll meet here tomorrow, I promise that I will be here, that's what you say to me, then provided I think that you are an honorable and trustworthy person, then as I approach our meeting tomorrow, I do so with confidence. Sure that we will meet. Sure that we will be together. Because it's just your promise to me. And you're a trustworthy person. The reason the gospel of justification by faith can bring confidence is not because we have confidence in ourselves, but because we have confidence in the one who makes the promise. So we've seen two things. Uh, We've seen that justification by faith is for everyone. doesn't depend on nationality or background or anything like that. And second, that it comes to us in the form of a promise. And the response to a promise is to believe. Um, And what I wanted to say finally is to notice where this justification heads, uh, where it leads to, what uh, what it achieves. Final verse uh, of, or the final section of our chapter um, revisits the the very lovely story um, of Abraham and Sarah's um, wrestle to to believe um, that God would give them these descendants. Um, See it in verse 18, where against all hope, we're told that Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. It is an extraordinary bit of the Old Testament narrative, isn't it? You read it and sort of find it just extraordinary. Here is Abraham at 100, um, Sarah not much younger. And there they are, year after year, waiting for this baby to arrive. And I don't know, what do they do? They're pitching up at the local obstetrics department? Can you imagine the reception they receive? You know, nurses sort of putting their hand gently on their arm and saying, no. Down the corridor on the left, that's geriatrics. You know, you pop down there. Or perhaps somebody says, do you know, actually, a little further down the corridor on the right, psychogeriatrics, that's what you really need. I mean, are they mad? Are they balmy? They're a hundred. You don't have a baby when you're a hundred. I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's just craziness, isn't it? To believe such a thing. Is that really the amazing thing? Is that really the extraordinary thing in this chapter? No, no, that's not nearly as ridiculous as the idea that you and I could 
could come before the glory of God, could come before the one who has made all things, the one who has existed in all eternity, the one who is utterly righteous, blazingly pure, that you and I could step into his presence and despite our rebellion, despite the the days, the weeks, the months, despite all the ways in which we have ignored him, rejected him and rested on our own desires day after day after day, that we should enter into his presence and be welcomed, be received, be embraced. That's the really ridiculous thing in this chapter. You think it's hard to imagine a hundred-year-old having a baby? Now, what's really hard to imagine is that God should do that for you and me. And the response is to believe him. To believe that because he is the God who gives life to the dead... He can do even this. He can even bring spiritual life to your and my dead soul. Because he is the one who brings into being things that are not, he can do this great thing. We are so puzzled, aren't we? We're so confused about what true religion really is and isn't. Because we're so sure that, that religion is about, and becoming a Christian is about me making promises to God. You know, me making commitments. Yeah, you know, we talk about, you know, have you committed yourself as a Christian? As if the big thing is my commitment to Him. It's not. That's religion. Christianity is about His commitment to me. It's about him making me a promise, not me making him one. Think back to uh, my, my previous illustration about the idea of, uh, of agreeing to meet. And think for a minute. If I pitch up, if, if it is all about me living well for 24 hours, then when we pitch up and you and I meet, then the glory is all mine, isn't it? Haven't I done well? We've met, we are together, we're having this encounter because of my excellence for the last 24 hours. I get the glory. But if I understand that that our meeting is all about your promise to me, then me turning up gives you the glory because I say, you are trustworthy. I believe your word when you speak it to me. That's the sort of person that you are. And in an infinitesimally much bigger way, when God says to us, I will justify you, I will make you righteous that you may dwell in my presence, and you and I believe him, we give glory to him. We say, even that he is capable of doing. It's there in verse 20 rather than waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, we're strengthened in faith and give glory to God, being fully persuaded that God has power to do what he has promised. 
Now, can I speak for a moment to those who think they're not good enough to be Christians? To the, those who think, I haven't really quite got it in me. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a good enough person. I couldn't keep it up. I'm not sure that I've got what it takes to be one of these Christian believers. Can I say, if that is the way you're thinking, do you see that you've, you've confused what you do for God with what he does for you? It's not about whether you can keep it up. It's not about whether you're a good enough person to become a Christian. It is just about taking him at his word, believing him when he says that he promises to make you righteous and receive you into his presence. This is how we honor him. This is how we bring him glory. Not by all the mighty things that we do for him. No, essentially we bring him glory just this way. Just by believing his promise to us. By living as men and women of faith. Faith in the one who, verse 24, raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Believing, verse 25, that this Jesus was delivered over death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The, the great power is not in my faith. No, the great power is in his promise. Faith is, is, is just the means by which I receive it. Just as there is light and I see it, or there is sound and I hear it, there is a promise and I believe it. Does that seem too pedestrian, just believing? You want to do something that's a little bit more heroic than that? Nothing pedestrian about faith. If you and I lived convinced that this were true, really convinced, if you believe that this is what God has done for you, transform everything about your life today, tomorrow, and forever. In all sorts of ways at the moment, mortality is pressing itself upon me. People getting towards the end of their lives. How will doing death be different when you believe this, when you are persuaded that this is true, that God justifies you by faith? But it won't just transform the day of your death. It will transform every day between now and then. Brothers and sisters, believe this gospel. Believe that there is justification by faith and bring him glory. Let me pray that that might be so. Uh, Father God, you have uh, spoken to us the most extraordinary word. You speak uh, into uh, our lives, lives that we know are full of ungodliness, full of all sorts of uh, resistance to you, uh, full of desires uh, for things uh, that are not pleasing to you. And you speak into these lives of ours and you tell us that you will justify us you will treat us as if we were Christ himself. You will welcome us with all the warmth 
that you, God the Father, has for Jesus, your Son. And you ask that we might believe you. Uh, you ask that we might respond as men and women of faith. Uh, grant that it might be so that we would bring you the glory that you deserve uh, for doing uh, such a glorious thing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.